0: Who is God to you? God for me is everything, is my life because my life without God is nothing. God is my Lord and Savior, my father. You add God to the equation, everything's better. God to me is really no one to be honest. So uh, distant, you know, not communicative, no empathy. God is my father. Somebody I pray to, talk to every day. God is a being greater than myself and greater than anybody else. God is people I meet and the experiences I have. I'm not really religious at all, so probably nothing. I don't believe in God. I don't believe it's intelligently possible that there was a God. He's there when I need help. He's there when I don't need help. He's just someone I want to talk to all the time. God is kind of like a mentor, and you should go to him for some faith. Mysterious. I will definitely say mysterious. I mean, to me, I I don't think that there is necessarily a God. I think that uh, we came from somewhere, and I don't know where that is, and there's plenty of uh, people that have answers for that, or think they have answers for that. But to me, having an invisible guy watch everything I do isn't uh, something I personally believe in, and... As far as like any role or anything in my life, it's not something that Glad you're here. No matter what campus you're joining us from of Northridge, we have a few in the Rochester area, and we're glad you're here. Even to those who are joining us online, thanks for being a part of this morning. My name is Aaron Hickson, and I normally spend my time down in Henrietta. So glad to be able to come to you this week from the Rochester campus and be able to continue in our series. God is, exploring who God is and what that means for us. And throughout this series, we have been saying kind of each week that whether or not you follow God depends on who you believe God is. Whether or not you follow him depends on and what you believe about them. And that makes a lot of sense. That's true about life. Whatever we believe about life, we act on those beliefs. So, really, what we've been zooming in on is filling in that sentence, God is, with some attributes, trying to let him speak for himself. So we've talked about the fact that God is love, and God is good, and today we're gonna be chasing down the idea that God is holy. God is holy, that's gonna be our focus this morning. But one thing we've tried to do in the series is not just describe who God is, but to try to surface the tensions that come with each one of his attributes. Um, so like, uh, with God is love, how could God be loving and still send people to an eternity apart from him? Or how could God be good and allow bad things to happen to good people. Um, And the idea of God's holiness has all of its own set of baggage that comes with us, with it. And so um, before I even get around to defining what holiness is or whether or not God is that, I want to describe what I think is a normal reaction to the idea that God is holy. Uh, I think that a lot of us can think this way from time to time. And I think we don't hear God is holy when we think about this. I think many of us actually hear or we think that God is holier than thou. It's not that God is holy, it's that God is holier than thou. And what's the difference between those two sentences? Well, if someone says that you are holier than thou, they're probably not complimenting your commitment to moral values, right? right? They're probably calling you a jerk. Uh, if, it's like, you know, if you're at, I don't know, the break room at work or whatever, like wherever you eat lunch, and if somebody's being like an office hero and they bring in some Wegmans chocolate chunk cookies, does that ever happen? It happens from time to time where I work. It's good to work at the church. Um, but anyway, everyone's passing around the cookies. If it comes to you and you're like, oh, no, thank you, I'm, I'm not eating any cookies, it's like, okay, <laughs> Mr. Healthy over here, holier-than-thou attitude, um, which, by the way, that situation's ridiculous on a few levels. I recognize one of the reasons, I just want you to know, that will never happen to me. Um, I will always eat all the chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> that is my thing. Um, but anyway... You know what I'm talking about, right? Like holier than thou is just a way of saying that you're condescending or that you have like an air of like moral superiority about you. And so this can come up about what you eat or what you don't eat or, you know, what you wear, what you don't wear or what you watch or whether or not you recycle or whatever. It can come up in a lot of different areas. And we don't like people that are holier than thou right? That's, we don't like them. And we often put God in this category. We kind of hinted at it in the first week of this series with the guilt God, right? You remember the guilt God? The guilt God is the one he's just sitting up in heaven, and he's all perfect, and he's looking down at us, and he's being all judgmental, and he's just waiting for us to mess up. So we're gonna be like, gotcha, right? That's kind of like, that's the guilt God. That's what we think of. And this view of God, it's so common. It's so common that it's second nature for a lot of people. Um, it's like, that little video that we played before the message, there's the guy at the very end who said that he just can't believe in a God. There's like an invisible guy watching him all the time, right? That's, that's the guilt God. That's what he's believing about God. And that view that God is high and mighty, sitting on his high horse, he's staring us down, watching us make all of our mistakes, and he's like kicking back with a bowl of popcorn like he's watching reruns of The Office, and he just loves it, right? That's the guilt God. So wh- where did we get that? Why why do we think that way about God? Is that who he really is? Is that just a figment of our imagination? I think we need to let God speak for himself when it comes to this issue of holiness and see if we can trace down the idea of where we got the sense that he's a jerk. So let's figure out. Let's figure out if God is holy. And before we even define the term, I think we need to ask, has God claimed to be holy? Let's let him speak for himself about this issue. Has he even said that he is holy? And so I think we need to take a look at what is probably the most famous and important passage about God's holiness. that can be found in Isaiah chapter 6. So if you want to turn there, that's on page 557. If you're using one of our Bibles here, um, and you can go ahead and turn there. And while you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of context as to who Isaiah is and what's going on. Isaiah is a prophet or a spokesperson for God, okay? He lived about 700 years before Jesus, and this is Isaiah 6. It's early in his time as a prophet. In fact, one of the first things that happens to him is what's taken, what happens in Isaiah 6, where he gets just like dropped into the throne room of God, and that's like the first thing that happens to him as a prophet. It's like kind of a crazy first day at the office. And He's sitting there, God's on a throne, he's huge and majestic and terrifying, and, and Isaiah says that there are angels just like circling around God at all times, and they're singing a song, like 24-7, they're singing a song about God, and Isaiah actually tells us what they're say, singing or saying. It's Isaiah 6-3. He says this, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So let's notice a couple of things here. First of all, they say God is holy three times. And this is not just mindless repetition, okay? This is meant to be like an emphatic declaration that this is who God is. All around the clock, for all of human history, there are angels declaring that God is, in his essence, fully and completely and entirely holy. And so that repetition is important. We want to notice the fact that they said it three times. But then also notice that what they're saying three times is holy, they're not saying good, good, good. They're not saying love, love, love. They're not saying sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. Those are things that God is, but they're declaring his holiness. So there's something distinct. There's, there's something central about God's holiness that we can, that we can gather. And just so you don't think that this is like some, okay, one isolated incident where something happened, there's actually another guy who gets dropped into the throne room of God and gets a glimpse as to what's happening. He also reports people singing about God all the time, and this is 700 years later. This is a guy named John who is a friend of Jesus, and here's what he says is happening in Revelation 4.8. He says, day and night they never stop saying, what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So there it is again. This is 700 years later, and he sees the same thing. They're declaring God's holiness above everything else, repeating it over and over. And so what I think we can kind of gather from these glimpses that we get into God's throne room is that God's essential characteristic is his holiness. God's essential characteristic is his holiness. When the dust settles and we have to trace everything about who God is back to its very center, what we would find at the core of who God is is that he is holy. All of his other attributes are ultimately flowing from this idea of his holiness. And this doesn't diminish any of his other qualities. He's not more holy than he is loving or something like that. But it does mean that the essence of who God is can be summed up in the word holy. So that's neat. But what does holiness mean, (laughs) right? If we don't know what it means, we're not getting anywhere in terms of progress. I think we have to think about the meaning of the word holy. And we're going to think about it kind of at a base level and then maybe at a little bit of a deeper level. Just at the surface level, the word holy means set apart. That's a definition of the word. It just means set apart there are kind of like word clusters in both Hebrew and Greek that convey this idea. Those are the two languages that the majority of the Bible was written in. And it just means like to be removed from the crowd, kind of set apart, distinct or other in some way. But if we're going to grasp, I think like the bigger biblical picture of this, we can't just go with what the word means. We need to understand its fuller meaning in its context. What other aspects of God's holiness is this word trying to convey? And I think there are two Aspects of God's separateness or His holiness, two components of that that we have to understand. His holiness, first of all, means that God is perfectly unique. The first component of God's holiness is that He is perfectly unique. And we're going to look all throughout this sermon at a lot of different um, biblical passages. So we'll put them on the screen so you can follow along. This first one is in 1 Samuel chapter 2. It says, There is no one holy like the Lord. There's no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do you see what's being emphasized here? Well, the fact is that God is incomparable. You can't compare anything to him. There's no one like God. There's no one holy like him. In other words, there are things that are holy, but they aren't holy in the way that God is holy. Or look at this one in Exodus 15. It says, who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in in glory and working wonders his holiness it says it's majestic it's grand it's sweeping it's unrivaled or here's this one this one's actually from God himself speaking of himself in Isaiah it says I am God and there is no other I am God and there is none like me God's set-apartness is unparalleled. He is perfectly unique in his holiness, in his greatness, in his power, and in his majesty. He's perfectly unique. But there's another component to his holiness. It's not just that he is perfectly unique. He is also uniquely perfect. He's also uniquely perfect. And so this is the idea of purity. God isn't just separate from everything else just for arbitrary reasons because he feels like it. It's because he is perfect and flawless and he cannot interact with anything that isn't perfect and flawless. And so we read this in the Psalms, Psalm 24. It says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? In other words, who gets to interact with God? Who gets to like be with him? The answer is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. So who can approach God? Well, the person who can approach God is somebody who is like God, who is clean and pure. Or in Habakkuk chapter one, it says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. God isn't just perfectly unique, meaning separated by himself in a league of his own. He's also uniquely perfect. No other being in the universe is as morally pure as God There isn't the smallest inkling, like the tiniest little scrap of wrongness in God. He is the standard for goodness and for purity. I love uh, this description of God in 1 Timothy. It says this. This is God, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. That's unapproachable light. In other words, it's a picture of absolutely radiant purity that is so flawless. It's shining like a light. And so do we see how these components of God's holiness are working together? He's perfectly unique. In other words, he's separate. He's unparalleled, but he's also uniquely perfect. He's pure and unadulterated. So there's kind of a you know, my best description of what I could describe holiness to be. If we're trying to give God a chance to speak for himself, what does he claim to be in regards to his holiness? That's a small taste of what I think the Bible has to say about God in his holiness. Holiness is the pulsating heartbeat of God, emanating and overflowing with majesty and power and purity at the very core of who God is. And so with all that in mind, Is it any wonder that people feel like God is holier than thou? Right? That really shouldn't be surprising. I mean, I'm just just doing my absolute best to describe God in the most monumental words I possibly can, like with all of these superlatives, that he's just something absolutely, completely different and unique and spectacular against anything else in the universe. So it's not hard to see why some people kind of feel like he's distant and a jerk, right? Right? I mean, I think this is a reasonable reaction. In, in all of our everyday lives, I think this is true. When we encounter greatness, it's natural to feel less than. When we encounter grace, it's natural. This is how we react when we're just around people who are better at stuff than us. If somebody's better, we feel worse. <laughs> That's just kind of how it goes. And it reminds me of my good friend, Dan. Uh, he's my co-leader in community group, a longtime Northridge attender, and for work, he is a residential remodeler, okay? Which, by the way, is like a bomb job title. That's pretty cool sounding. But anyway, I have mentioned I have a hobbyist interest in woodworking and DIY projects, okay? I like to do that kind of thing. I am much more interested than I am talented. <laughs> My wife would testify. <laughs> um, but Dan, on the other hand, he is a professional. He's a residential remodeler. So every once in a while, I will ask him to like send me photos of like a bathroom that he's redone, or a kitchen that he designed, or a house that he built, because that's like a thing he can do. That's cool. Okay, I think it's really cool that he can build a house. But anyway, when I see those pictures, I usually go through a series of emotions. My first emotion is amazement, like, wow, that looks so good. And then I'm kind of angry. I'm like, that looks so good. And then I'm just depressed. I'm like, it'll never look that good when I do it. That's like the natural sequence. And maybe you've had this experience before. Maybe when you try like somebody's recipe or you see their quarterly reports or you see their report card or whatever it is, you're just like, I will never be that good. And the moment you experience something better, you feel worse. It's natural to immediately compare yourself and to feel lame. In fact, sometimes we're so bad about this, we end up getting mad at the person. Like, I'm so mad that they're so good. (laughs) Like, I don't know. I don't know how we do that. It's a natural, it's not good, but it's what we tend to do. And so when it comes to God's holiness, he's amazingly pure and majestic, it makes perfect sense that people's focus would immediately go to the areas of their lives where they don't measure up, right? That's what I do. We immediately begin to notice our own flaws, we're feeling self-conscious, we know we don't feel good enough. And the weird thing is, when it comes to our relationship with God, that's actually the right reaction. That's how you're supposed to feel. That feeling that you aren't good enough and that God is somehow in like a whole other category of being and perfectness and goodness, that's how you should feel. In fact, remember the two guys, Isaiah and John, that both kind of got a glimpse into God's throne room. There's angels singing and they're declaring God's holiness. How did they react? Let's look at how they reacted after they saw God's holiness with all of their sinfulness in mind. Look at what Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, 5. "'Woe to me,' I cried, "'I am ruined.'" for I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He's like clawing his eyes out. He's like, I'm gonna die. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm broken. I'm sinful. God is so pure. I can't interact with him. Look at, I love how John puts in Revelation 1:17. when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. <laughs> he just cuts right to the chase. I mean, are you catching this trend? It's absolutely normal. In fact, it's actually appropriate to feel less than to feel worthless, to feel unworthy when you get a sense, a sense of how perfect and holy God is. The two dudes in the Bible who got to see him thought they were gonna die. So you might be thinking, wait a second, are we confirming the narrative that God's a jerk and that he's like separate and distant and remote from us? Like what, what are we doing right is, Are we confirming that story that God, the guilt God is real? And the answer is no. I know it seems like I am, but I'm not. And I'm going to spend the rest of our time this morning trying to convince you of that truth and trying to explain how that guilt God, that jerk God who is condemning, that's exactly how God could have chosen to set up the universe, but he didn't. He chose another way. In fact, the fact that he chose another way is the only reason that we're here today. I want to talk about why that is. So here's the way I see it. First of all, if God is a perfectly holy God, which um, he, we, I think we've established at least he claims to be, okay? Whether or not you believe that that's true or you take the Bible seriously, whatever, he at least claims to be a perfectly holy God, okay? So God is perfect, and if we are terribly flawed, which I don't think I have to prove, I think we've all experienced that in ourselves and in our world that we are flawed. So God is perfectly holy, we are terribly flawed, and perfect holiness can't interact or have a relationship with sinful humanity. That doesn't work, remember how Isaiah and John reacted, they wanted to die, okay? So if God is perfect and we are flawed and God can't interact with sinful humanity, then it seems like there are only two ways that God could handle existing in a universe with us, okay? Here are two ways to handle our sin problem. The first path would simply be to punish our sin. One way to handle our sin problem would be to just punish our sin. And that's the path that most people assume that God chose. The path where God recognizes, hey, look, I'm perfect, that they're broken, I can't interact with those sinful wretches, and so I'm just going to choose to condemn them and to destroy them. And honestly, that's what we deserve. Humanity is so full of wickedness and violence and perversion, God would be perfectly justified in destroying the sin in and around us. I mean, if you think about a judge who sees and interacts with a guilty person, we're hoping that justice is served, that there's punishment involved, right? That's not just what we think about God, that's what we think about the human courts. So, God would be perfectly justified in punishing us in our sin. But what's the problem with that from God's perspective? Well, His his justice, his goodness, would be just fine with that because we're sinful, we deserve punishment, he gives us the punishment, game over, it all works, the balance of justice is balanced, all is well. But God desires a relationship with us. Now, I don't know why he wants a relationship with us, but he does, and so he has a problem. If he were to choose the path of justice and punishment, he couldn't have a relationship with us because we would be destroyed And so what's the other option? If path number one is to punish our sin, but he can't do that because he wants a relationship, what's the second option? Well, the second option would just be to excuse our sin, to turn a blind eye to it. And in this version of the universe, God is perfect. We are horribly flawed. But since God wants a relationship with us real bad, he chooses to turn a blind eye to all of our sin and faults and flaws. And we get to spend eternity interacting with him and having a relationship with us. But he has to kind of spend the entire time just going like, la di da di da di da da and ignoring all of the violence and perversion and terribleness and wickedness that we already talked about. And this kind of seems like it works out for us, right? Like, we don't mind this. We get a relationship with God, and he wants that for some reason, so it seems like that's working out. What's the downside for God, though? Well, for one, the downside is this isn't just or righteous at all. In this version of the world, all of the wrong stuff that has ever happened, it's not made right. There is no justice. This judge is letting all the guilty people go free, which if they were doing that in our courts, we would probably have a problem, right? So God is better than a human judge. He's a perfectly just judge. And so he can't just let us off. That's not really an option. And so he's stuck in this conundrum. What's he going to do? Is he going to punish sin? Well, we don't want that. Was he going to excuse sin? Well, he can't do that. By punishing sin, he's going to preserve his holiness and justice, but then he can't have a relationship with us. If he overlooks sin, that's great. We get a relationship with him, but he has to deny himself and his own nature. And so do you see the position that this puts God in? There is a conundrum, a dilemma, that God's holiness and our sinfulness creates in the universe. So what is he going to do? Well, the amazing thing is that God created a third way. God created another way to deal with this problem. He, on his own, came up with a plan that both upholds his holiness and brings us into a relationship with him. It both maintains justice and it solves our problem. The Bible says it this way. I love this. Rather than choosing one of those two options, he created a third way. It says this in Romans. He did it so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What, what does this mean? Do you see that language that's coming through? There's a paradox of our problem right in that verse. God is just. In other words, he punishes sin and he maintains his holiness, but he also is the one who justifies. He is the one who goes and fixes our problem and draws us close to himself. How does he do this? How does he find another way to interact with us? How can a perfect God find a way to have a relationship with sinful humanity and not be tainted by our sin? And the way that the Bible says that he did it is through his son, Jesus. But what could Jesus possibly do that would turn us, broken humans, into something that God could have a relationship with? What would he be able to do that would allow God to maintain his justice? And here's how we did it. We have some of the most beautiful words in the Bible in 2 Corinthians chapter five. They say this, that God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm going to read that again. I think this is amazing. God made him, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God and I just want to unpack this for a minute because I don't know that we recognize the significance of what that says. That solves the riddle. That fixes the paradox of God's problem, how a holy God can interact with sinful people. It says God made him. That's Jesus, okay? So God made Jesus who had no sin. So Jesus is without sin. In other words, he is holy. He's God. He's perfectly unique. He's uniquely perfect. And so we have a perfect being. God made him perfect being to had no sin, in order to be sin for us. How did God make a perfect being sin for us? Well, what we know is that God is a just judge who needed to punish sin, right? But if he punishes us for our sin, he can't have a relationship with us because then we would be dead. So what did he do? Well, he took his perfect son and he put our sin on his account, and then he now took his son who was full of sin and put him on a Roman cross and poured out all of his wrath, all of his anger, all of his holy justice towards sin, he poured it all out on his son Jesus, not unto us, not the ones who deserved it, onto his son, the perfect one who temporarily took on all of our sinfulness. So Jesus became sin for us, and then what happens to us? What do we get back from Jesus? We already gave him our sinfulness. What's he gonna give us in return? God already poured his anger out on that sinfulness. What's he gonna give us? It says that so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? That means that we give our sinfulness to Jesus and what he gives us in return is his perfect sinless holiness. It's as if he takes off his robe of perfection, puts it aside for a second, takes our sinfulness, puts it on, dies the death absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf with our sinfulness on, picks up his perfect sinlessness and hands it back to us. That's the way that this works. He picks up his robe of holiness and in exchange gives it to us. And so this verse contains the solution for how a terrifying and perfect God could end up having a relationship with his sinful creation. He did it by giving us his holiness, by wrapping our sinfulness in his perfection, by giving the full dose of punishment that was for us to a substitute who had no debt to pay. And so family, without this exchange, God would be required to be judgmental and distant and condemning because his holiness would compel him to be The only way to overcome the barrier that existed came at great personal cost to God, and he had to give up his own perfection. That was the only way around his perfection. And so the only way this works is through Jesus. The third way is not to excuse our sin. It's not to just punish us for our sin. The third way is to pay for our sin. You could say it this way, that through Christ, God can keep his standard and keep us close. God can keep his standard of holiness and bring us close to himself. And so where does this leave us in our view of God? Is God vindictive and judgmental? He could have been. In fact, he would have been perfectly justified in being just like that. But that's not what he does. Instead, this is what he did. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The guilt God doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a vindictive God who sees all of our guilt and just delights in it. There is, however, a holy God who cannot interact with sin, but he was willing to step into a body and take on our sin so that he could destroy it and then offer us his perfection. So how do we respond to something like that? How do we respond to that kind of a truth? I think there are three, I I guess, reasonable responses to the holiness of God. And the first one is simply to respect it. To respect it. No matter how amazing it is that God was willing to become a man and take on our sin and allow us to become part of His family, we can't forget the reaction that Isaiah and John had. When they saw God's holiness, they wanted to die and they thought they deserved to die. Anytime we get a glimpse of God's holiness in the Bible, there is reverence, there is fear, and there is respect. People take off their shoes as they approach. The place where God's holiness dwelt in the temple and in the tabernacle, God's homes, was called the Holy of Holies. And you only entered it once a year, and even then, only after a strict adherence to the rules was followed, so that this one person who entered once a year could be pure enough to offer a sacrifice. God is not a child's plaything, He's not to be trifled with. He is holy, He's powerful, and He's dangerous. Now, he loves us, and he's made a way for us to draw near to him. But don't forget, we're dealing with the God of the universe. He's not going to be mocked. So we have to respect it. But second of all, when it comes to God's holiness, we have to accept it. We have to accept it. Remember that exchange we talked about where Jesus takes our sin and we get his holiness? That is something that absolutely must occur for every single person who would like to have a relationship with God. Perfection is not something you can earn. You're not going to sew your own robe of perfection and goodness. You are given it by Jesus, by placing your faith in him, by turning your life over to him in surrender. You need that holiness. You need it bad, and you can't earn it. If you don't receive the holiness that Jesus offers, then the punishment that he took on the cross wasn't your punishment. And so rather than God punishing your sin through Jesus on the cross, you have to bear your punishment on your own. You don't want that. We don't want that for you. That's why we're here. That's why we exist, is to tell people about how they can receive the holiness that they so desperately need. So please don't leave any of our locations today no matter where you're watching from or online, please talk to someone. Talk to the person who invited you, who sent you the link, whatever you have to do, please don't wait to accept the holiness that God offers. So the final response, we need to respect it, we need to accept it, and we need to chase it. We need to chase it. What do I mean? How do we chase after holiness? Didn't Jesus give us our holiness already wearing the robe of his perfection? Why should we have to chase after holiness? Well, here, as Christians, is where another paradox enters the picture for us. We have to come to understand the difference between our position and our practice. Our position and our practice. If you're a Christ follower here today, I have good news. You have been given perfection through Jesus. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Jesus. He sees his perfection and his holiness. So technically, your standing with God is perfectly stable. It's perfectly secure. You already have all of the holiness you need. That's great news. But then if you look at your life, or if you look at my life, what you're gonna find is that we are far from perfect. There's a whole lot of unholiness going on inside of me. And so what do we do with that tension? Well, this is where spiritual growth comes into play. Christians are on a lifelong journey of resting in the perfection that we've been given while simultaneously pursuing a life that reflects that perfection. I love what Hebrews says. Hebrews 12, it says, make every effort to what? Live at peace with everyone. In other words, don't let people think God is holier than thou because you're holier than thou. And to be holy. Make every effort We should be striving to be holy, just like God is holy, perfect and without flaw. But what we have to recognize is that we will constantly make decisions that make us fall short of that standard. And so it's going to be easy to begin to feel like we have to earn the holiness back, like that our motivation should be to just try harder or to be better or to like find that robe of holiness we were given and try to like scrub it off. But the process of becoming more holy, of becoming more set apart, or the fancy term is sanctification, that process is a process of striving to live in practice what we've been given in position. It's a process of learning to live in practice what we've been given in position. Another way is to say that we need to accurately reflect in our lives what we've been given in God's eyes to accurately reflect in our lives what God has given I and mean, what we are been given in God's eyes. So for Christians, we have find ourselves in this weird position of having deep gratitude for the perfection we've already been given, but needing deep motivation to find the pockets of unholiness in our life and purge them out. So which one do we need to focus on this week? Which one? Do you need to alter your view of God? Maybe you've seen him as Vindictive and judgmental and distant. I hope you can see that's how he could have been, but he is incredibly gracious and loving and has made a way for you to know him. Or maybe you have the opposite problem. Maybe you've lost sight of the majesty and the perfection of God. And it's been real casual. And you need, to, you need to go back to remembering the truth of how lofty, how other, how holy our God is and how incredible it is that something that perfect would choose a relationship with us. Or maybe you just have areas of your life, like I do, um, where we're not meeting the standard of holiness that God has set for us. Is it in what you watch, what you say, who you hang out with, how you live, who you date? What needs to change in your life to become more like Christ, to better reflect his holiness, to better reflect the position that you've been given. Maybe for you, you need to accept God's gift of holiness for the very first time. You've been trying to make it work, been trying to kind of like fake the holiness thing. Like maybe you've been going to church or maybe you haven't been faking it. And you're just saying like, honestly, I've never even been close. I've never even pretended that I was. And so maybe you feel like you're a lost cause or you're right on the verge of earning it yourself. Neither of those are true. God made him who had no sin to be sin for you. No sin too great and no human effort good enough because in Christ we have the holiness that we need. So regardless of where you're coming from today, I, th- I hope that you can begin to thank God for his work in your life. Thank God for his holiness. Despite the fact that it separated us from him, he was willing to bridge that gap. And maybe as we all head to group this week and we're talking about the areas of our life, we need to identify specifically where holiness is very clearly not happening and not try to manufacture some spiritual growth or try harder, but to rest deeper into the holiness we've already been given and allow that to motivate us to a life that pleases God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we love you, and it's uh, just ridiculous that you would have made it possible for us to know you. I mean, the gap is way too big between us and you. Your holiness is way too amazing, and our sinfulness is way too broken. But you made a way for us to know you, and as a result of that, lives can be changed, chains can be broken. Things can be healed, we can be whole because of the love that you've shown us motivated by your holiness. So I pray that we would make our hearts a place that not only reflects what you've given us but that lives and practice the truth of being holy as you are holy. I pray all this in Jesus' name.